Hey folks, Matt Gurney here. This is the seventh episode of the Lions Experimental Podcast, which, to be honest, at this point, I think it's just the podcast, but I guess you fall into a, a habit. You keep calling it experimental. This is not a fun episode. We're talking a lot about, uh, look, there is some Canadian politics in here. We're talking about the conservative leadership race. We're talking about uh, agriculture. Uh, we're talking about energy. But we spent a lot of this podcast talking about what happened this week in Texas. And that, of course, uh, echoing what had just happened in Buffalo. We really wish we could just talk with you about good stuff and happy stuff and not have to talk about these sorts of things. Jen and I are both parents to young kids. My wife is an elementary school teacher. We don't like thinking or talking about this stuff, but the news is the news. Just consider yourself warned. This is not our most upbeat conversation here on the seventh episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Uh, welcome, guys. Another uh, week here at the line. Jen, this week kind of sucked. Um, the, the biggest news story this week was just one of those things. I don't really have a lot to say about it. Um, obviously, I'm referring to the San Antonio uh, shooting 19, was it 19 dead kids now, two teachers plus the shooter. I, so I'm one of the only Canadian journalists that actually has any expertise in firearms policy. So for years, Whenever one of these things would happen, I'd be the guy. I'm not a U.S. expert, but I would know enough that I could be the go-to guy. Sandy Hook in 2012, I just kind of didn't think I had much left to say. And after San uh, Bernardino, I think it was in the in the in the U.S. 2015, I, I retired from from writing about these. I got nothing left to say. There, 90% of Americans would support a basic package of background checks that would be completely routine and commonplace in the in the canadian system and they're not going to get them because the republicans won't do it like this is i've been saying this week this is not a gun control problem this is a political problem when the when the when it, an entire u.s party in a two-party system is enslaved by 10 percent of the electorate you have a dysfunctional political system Gun control is a symptom. It's not the problem. And I know people go, oh, of course it's about the guns. Like how many, how many idiots this week have declared some blindingly obvious solution to this problem? And it like, well, I just got to ban the guns. Oh, oh all right. That's like, all you have to do. No, Matt, what you need to do is you got to get rid of the AR-15s and you got to do background checks. Yeah. Okay, Super. great. Yeah. Cool. You go do that then. Yeah. Like this is like the equivalent of like me walking up to a guy who's lost his leg and being like, you got to put a tourniquet on that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Like, Thanks like, for the tip. And then just walking away. Like, yeah. Well, good luck with that ephemeral bleed. The American, the problem the Americans have is not gun control. And also, like we were talking a few weeks ago about Roe Ro v. Wade. It's not Roe v. Wade. The problem is that a one U.S. political party, arguably two, because I'm not blind to the problems the Democrats have. You know what? Actually, I'm going to rephrase this. Neither mainstream political party is capable right now of addressing what the mainstream of America wants. They've both been captured by their fringe. I don't think the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans. What the Democrats are proposing is annoying. What the Republicans are proposing is dangerous. I, 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 would, like, I would go a little bit further there, and I would, I would trace the root causes even deeper. I think America is a broken society. I think, I think it's, I think it's, there's something culturally sick about it because it's not just the number of guns that are on the street all right all right like it's not just that you could reduce even if you could even if you could practically reduce the number of guns in american hands by 
90%. Let's say 90%. There's Even if you did make it in Canadians, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like, let's, 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 let's do that. Let's introduce all the background checks. Let's do, do all that. I think that the society is so fundamentally messed up that you're still going to get these, you know, I think, I think there's something to the argument about like the America is in a, in a, in a weird de facto state of civil war. And these sorts of mass shootings are indicative of a pathology. Like they're, they're, the, the society's yeah. broken. That society is sick and it's not, yeah. Okay. Of course, if you could get rid of all the guns tomorrow, you wouldn't have mass shootings, but practically speaking, you can never get rid of all of the guns. And as yeah. long as there's some there and you're in a broken society, I think that you're going to have these kinds of incidents. And, and so it's, are we, it's, um, are we chicken and egging though? I mean, what I'm, I mean, yeah. I, I don't disagree with you that American society is broken, but what yeah. is the causal factor? Has a dysfunctional political system broken American society or has a broken American society resulted in a dysfunctional political system? And then what's happened is a broken American society with a, with a, with a dysfunctional political system encourages people to buy more guns. Sure. Right? Like this. And then the whole thing is, right, it's an Ouroboros problem. And, and this is, I think, the U.S. today, it. would you be armed? Probably. Same. Probably. Like, we're, we're moving into the realm of individual actors, right? Because... Yeah. Because collectively the society can't can't be trusted, and 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 you know we don't live in it's not Canada. This isn't a high trust society where I can trust. I mean, you, you get some of this even in rural Canada, in places where, for example, uh, the RCMP takes forty five minutes to show up, mm-hmm. right? So somebody's breaking into my farm, I'm getting the gun. You know, like like so you get a little bit of this where where you have kind of basic law and order, basic trust in your institutions and society breaks down. People take matters into their own hands. It's just what it is. Um, and I think that we have a hell of a lot less of this in Canada, thank God. Um, and I also think bluntly, even the, even the culture around gun ownership and gun use in Canada is fundamentally different. And this is something that we in Canada don't really get. I mean, my dad's told me stories about how he would go shoot guns and with friends in Florida and he was appalled. You know, he was just, he was just, he was just appalled at the lack of safety, the cavalier attitude around the weapons, like just no one behaves like that in a gun range in Canada. Like you just don't like gun ranges in Canada take their shit really seriously. I, I have a story. Um, it's, it's not as extreme as what is what you're getting at here, but I was with a group of uh, Canadian guys at an American gun range and the guy comes out, he's a totally friendly American guy. Uh, he's like, all right, where are you, where, where are you all from? I go like, oh, from Canada. He goes, okay, cool. He goes, I get Canadian sometimes. Any of you guys actually experience with guns and who needs the full primer? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I know my guns. He's like, okay, cool. You go have fun. And he just like hands me the AR. And then he's like, and the rest of you guys, I'm going to like give you like the safety lesson. But I, I stayed with the dudes. Like I wasn't going to go off, but it was just kind of, like, oh, yeah, here you go. Like, okay, if you're good, yeah, no problem here. And like, it, was, it wasn't an AR. It was like a Thompson submachine gun. And it was like, yeah, here, you take the Tommy gun. You can go have some fun. I'll, I'll give your buddies here the safety lesson. I mean, thank you for handing me the Thompson submachine gun. I'm definitely going to have fun with this. But in Canada, if you show up at a gun range and you're like, oh, yeah, I know guns, they're going to go, great, come on, I'll walk you through it. Like, there is not that level of trust there. I think in Canada, look, again, I don't know if I have anything to say about the United States. We're going to pick this up again in a minute, actually, because an American commentator had an interesting comment. We're going to take that apart separately. There is one thing I want to say, though, and I have, I got nothing left to say I got nothing left to say about 19 dead kids in the U.S. Um, well, another, but, and this is also where his parents, 
I don't, I can't even read the news. Like, I can't read about this. Like, I'm sorry, but like. My daughter's the same age as the victims and my wife's an elementary school teacher. Like, like I can't emotionally do this. I I just, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just like, I can't. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the U.S. is that all, all of these things are the same. And one of the ways they're the same is that they're all a little bit different. And I know that sounds like a dumb bumper sticker, but what I mean by that is that I, you know, to, to any of our listeners or viewers right now who have the emotional strength to continue uh, consuming this content, what happens in every one of these incidents is that they're all the same functionally. But what would be different is that some intrepid journalist will find an interesting storyline. And that interesting storyline will be a particularly interesting victim. It will be a particularly compelling witness. It will be some quirk about the the shooter. I think in the San Antonio one, what it's going to be, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's going to be that the police fuck this up. Like, Mm -hmm. there is a protocol in North America of how you respond to an active shooting. If you're a cop, you don't wait for backup. You You don't wait for SWAT. You attack. And you might get killed. But we learned after the Montreal massacre, like when the Montreal massacre happened at the Cole Polytechnique, the cops did what was then the protocol. They surrounded the building, they established a perimeter, they waited for police leadership to arrive, and they expected a call with a list of demands or for a hostage. Yeah. Like that's not the pr- protocol anymore. Now we understand these incidents are about killing as many people, and the shooter must be killed. That didn't happen in Texas, and I don't know why. Um, I have theories why. I think, honest to, honest to God, it comes down, I hate to say this, to cowardice. I think the cops are like, holy shit, I'm not going in against a guy with AR-15 when I've, got a, when I've got a pistol. So I think the cops staged around the perimeter and they did not go into the line of fire. But it, that's going to be the storyline of this one. And the reason every one of these goddamn incidents has a storyline is because I don't want to talk about 19 dead kids. Yeah. I want to talk about anything else. Is there something interesting about the town is there something particularly tragic about one of the victims? We can talk about their inspiring life story. Is there something about the gun? Is there like a local political angle? There are 19 kids who got dropped off at school earlier in the week. And by the end of the day, they weren't kids anymore. They were evidence. No one wants to talk about that. So we find other things to talk about. And this is, I, I got, I had no wisdom left. I got nothing to add about this. Every day I've dropped my kids off this week, it's felt weird. And then I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if this news went national here. In Toronto, a guy got killed Thursday. It was on Thursday uh, for having a rifle near a school in Toronto. Toronto cops responded. They shot him dead. And we found out afterwards. And this, as soon as I heard this, I didn't, I didn't tweet anything about this because I don't, I, I, you know. Twitter, don't, know. You don't need instant reactions in the middle of a moment like this, right? But when I heard what had happened, which was that a guy was outside of school in Toronto, an elementary school in Toronto with a rifle in full view of the public, but he didn't go into the school. I said to myself, that's suicide by cop. I, I, I told, I told oh, yeah. a friend, I bet you that's not a real gun. And uh, the police confirmed last night that it was not a real gun. It was, uh, it was an air gun. And so there's some, no way for them to know that. And are you going to risk, are you going to risk kids? Of course you can. Yeah, exactly. So some guy in Toronto shows up outside of school with an air gun and the police kill him in a suicide by cop. I will say this though. I have, n- I, I got nothing to say about the 19 evidence uh, exhibits that used to be children when this week started. I will say 
that wait for it like clockwork our liberals in canada are going to announce in fact they've already said they will they're going to roll out some new gun control initiative here because guns and abortion are the leading liberal party of canada wedge issues right now um, the, the, the so-called military-style assault weapons ban, which was neither a military, didn't, didn't include military-style assault rifles and wasn't really a ban, that was rolled out right after Nova Scotia. The liberals move incrementally on gun control in Canada not because they, they understand nothing that they're proposing is actually going to save lives. These are political props. Yes. So whenever something about abortion comes up, well, Trudeau goes, well, hey, maybe we need to legislate it here in Canada. 19 dead kids in Texas, all of a sudden we've got new gun control measures coming out in Canada. Trudeau's been prime minister for seven years. He's already passed one total, complete legislative bill revamping our gun control, Bill C-71. He did it in his majority term. Everything since has been responding to news cycles mostly coming out of the United States. Nova Scotia yeah. was a Canadian story. These are incremental things. If whatever the liberals are going to end up with as their gun control plan, they could do it like that. They could do it. They've got NDP support. No, is, they've got a second is, majority. This is, this is about incremental. You're right. This is the, these are these are incrementalist uh, political props. I agree with you on that yeah. one. And I don't. And they're going to have five more in store for the next five major shootings. Oh, I was. Oh, yeah. No, of course. No, and I mean, I don't know exactly what they're going to announce next week, but I, I already I have a bit of an idea, and it's going to be some reannouncements. It's going to be reviving uh, something that died on the order paper last time. Uh, what they're going to do is they're going to save a handgun ban. Uh, they're going to talk about it a lot, but I bet you they're going to save it for the next election. And this is yeah. if they like. Here's the thing. You can, you can draw two conclusions from this. Either A, our federal liberals believe that their firearms proposals will save lives and they waited on them for seven years. B, they don't think they'll save lives, which is why they felt comfortable waiting on them but they trot them out in the aftermath of tragedy for political reasons. Neither well, and this is also right. this. Then this is this is also why they go after the legal guns, right? Because yes, we know that the majority of guns used in Canadian crimes are illegally smuggled guns, but that's hard. Very hard. Whereas you know, in, uh, uh, invoking incremental um, con uh, gun control measures against legal guns that that you know most of their base find icky anyway, that's easy, right? Like that's just an easy win. Politically, it makes total sense to me. Politically, it's smart. Oh, I've, I've written that many times before. It's bad policy. It's good politics. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So that, there's that. I'll put together a blurb of some kind. Yeah, I think, I think the key, the key, the key point here is just to, is just, is just what you just said, which is like, you know, all of these gun control measures are now incremental and they're, that's because they're, they're, they're a game. They're engaging in a game now. I tweeted like an hour or two ago um, that the Liberal Party of Canada is resolute in their conviction that they will not rest until they have tweaked Canadian gun regulations enough that the mass shootings in, in America stop. So I'm That's sure it's great for donations. For things. Anyway, moving on to more Twitter and guns in America. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly guns. It was Matt Iglesias, um, yeah. uh, an American writer, a very good writer. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a big fan of his work, but he's a very good writer. Like, I don't uh, know. Okay. well-known uh like i'd say top 10 kind of well-known american writers yeah. right now yeah. certainly of the younger generation yeah. yeah uh he's he's around our age um he's he's, a, he's also more sort of reliably leftist but he's oh, he's a uh, yeah he's a lefty but i mean he's a bit of a heterodox lefty yep. so i mean he's kind of in our 
in our sphere. He recently left Vox to go start his own sub stack, which is now the thing that all the cool kids are doing. Obviously. He, yeah, he was, uh, I became aware of him when he was a columnist at Slate Magazine, which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Um, and then he was at Vox, uh, and you're right, he left a year or two ago to go uh, solo. He had a tweet. He became the main character on Twitter. Well, he said something about, let's remember, even at times like this, that America is the country that everybody still wants to move to. Yes. Something something like that. Yeah. Um, and I... This is you and I talked about this earlier this week because we kind of winced and we said, "Oh yeah, okay, way to go, buddy!" Like three hundred. Oh, you're going to become the main character today. Yeah. Three hundred and forty million angry people are going to take it out on you. Here's yeah. the thing: someone in his replies, and I don't think it was a journalist, I think, was, or like a commentator, I think it was just a dude, replied to him and said, "Yeah, but how many of them are coming from the developed world?" And you and I went, "Bing, that so is like it." A, here's here's another thing that I think we want to unpack a little bit. That, his statement was one of those things that in any other day would have been a completely benign statement because yeah. it is it is factually correct. America is still leading destination. People are and like you can tell a lot about the disingenuousness of of critiquing ideology when you start to look at immigration flows. Like there's a reason why people are immigrating to America and not say China or Russia. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like there there's a reason why that's happening. And so it's worth noting that that's that's correct. Like there is there is um, you, know, you know people still want to live in America despite all of its problems. That's completely correct. And if he'd made that point on literally any day that didn't have nineteen children who died in a mass shooting in a in an American school, he would not have been absolutely hounded for it on Twitter. Because it wouldn't have been fucking stupid. But that's correct. On the on the moment when I get. I doubt Jen at that moment. I hate to be so blunt about this, but like we got to we got to use blunt language to talk about this. I bet you those bodies had not been removed from the scene yet. Like yeah. I doubt the evidence techs had had time to go through and document it. There there were one hundred percent still families at the euphemistically called reunification center. And by the end of it, like if you spend more than a couple of hours at a reunification center, you're not getting reunited. You're getting they the kids I bet were still in the class cooling off. The parents were sitting at the reunification center, growing increasingly nervous. And Iglesias here's the tweet. Decides, I just pull it up here. For oh, all its it? okay. very real problems, one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the contemporary United States of America is one of the best places to live in all of human history. And there's a reason tons of people of all kinds from around the world clamor to move here. Of course, this got ratioed significantly can i ask you can, can you do me a favor can you read that again but replace for all its problems with despite 19 dead kids to see let's read okay. that despite the 19 dead children in a san antonio classroom one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the contemporary united states of america is one of the best places to live in all of human history and there's a reason tons of people of all kinds from around the world clamor to move here mm. yeah i don't know you know what I did though, and we talked about this because I did see that reply basically going, "Yeah, but how many of them are coming from the developed world?" So I went and I found U.S. net immigration source data. Now, what I've done is I've taken 2019 data collected in 2020. Let's let's treat the last two years as weird because of uh, the pandemic, right? Only about 13 percent. Of, of immigrants are going to the United States from what we would, 
it's not a perfect metric for the developed world, but 13% of immigrants are coming from Europe or Canada. Uh, a quarter coming from Asia, 10% from Africa, a quarter from Mexico. Um, and the rest is kind of basically uh, Central or, or South America or, or Australasia. The overwhelming majority, though, are coming from developing countries. And that's like Iglesias is right. With all of, Amer- with all of America's problems, even with you'd, 19 you'd, dead you'd, kids. You'd, you'd still pick America over... The developing world, anywhere. The developing world, yeah. I get that. But... Meanwhile, and again, like I'm, I'm. The and meanwhile, Canadian. also the 13 percent coming from uh, Canada and and and, all, and Europe. Couple notes: one, it's actually very hard to immigrate to America coming from like if the just paper, the, yeah. the bureaucracy and the paperwork makes it really, really difficult. Which means if you can afford to do this legally, you're spending tons and tons of money, and you're probably like in the top one to two percent of your lane in your respective uh, industry. Oh yeah, which you're means, a doctor, or or yeah, you're, like, or, yeah. or you're or you're 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 uh, you're really, really, really high talent, and you're coming into America because you can make it shit ton more money um in america than you can in in canada Mm -hmm. i mean this is this is why we had the brain drain right but you know this is not you know this is this is a very unique situation if you are extremely talented or you're in the top tier of your of your industry and you can make a lot more money in america that then america might be of interest to you if you were in an already developed nation but if you are anything less than that and even increasingly if you are in that top tier yeah my husband looked at going to America and we were like kind of a sick place now isn't it mm. kind of broken we've uh, broken do I want to raise my kids there really yeah if again like I can I, I do not blame anyone in in the developing world or particularly really fucked up parts in the developing world I don't blame them for looking at America and going you know what this is the better chance for my family because you 100%. know what in a lot of cases it Absolutely is, is. yeah but it, any of the other advanced Western democracies, when it comes to a lot of social issues, if you are not actually going to be in the top 1% of the income bracket, you're probably better off where you are. And this is well, something and, and I love issue- America. Like, I don't say oh, yeah. this is America hater. I love no. America. I and love Americans. Is, and this is the other thing too, is like, like again, um, if I were a single person trying to move to America, sure. that would be, sure, why not? I'll go live in California for a couple of years. Sounds like a blast. I'll go to New York. Awesome. And then you have kids. And then you see stories about children being murdered in schools. And then you start looking around and going like, what kind of values do I really want my kids to grow up with? And is America demonstrative of those values? Is this, is this a country in which, you know, people are looking out for one another and where there's, there's healthy, safe communities and my, my kids are going to see a good thing growing up. If or you have this, enough money, sure, it's all those. Well, any, but but even if you have enough money, okay. So I'm gonna what, what we're gonna take our kids to a gated community where they're gonna be completely insulated from ninety percent of the population. Like, that's 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 your that's your that's your offer for my kids. When, uh, when we were just in the U.S. a couple months ago, we spent a week doing tourism, uh, going around hotels, checking out different places. We spent a week just relaxing in Florida, and we were in a gated community, and it was. Yeah pleasant but it was an interesting way to live um and like that's very different like culturally from canada it's not like canada doesn't have the odd gated community but like even relative even very wealthy people here are still living in communities that are accessible to everyone because we live in a high trust society like i mean even people who come from other parts of the world will come to canada and be blown away by the fact that a lot of houses don't have fences there's there's mm-hmm. almost no security you can just walk up to anybody's door like in a lot of parts of the world, that is mind blowing. Yeah. 
that you would, that I would, you would live in a house that with a door that you can open to the street, you know, like, like that is, that is not normal in most societies. And it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful way to live, to, to have that kind of high trust society. I don't think America's that anymore. Even notwithstanding all these issues, something that's been coming up in America for a while is the American dream is dying in terms yeah. of uh, literal physical mobility, socioeconomic mobility. America's not, and again, like we, we talked about this at the beginning. I don't know what the chicken is. I don't know what the egg is. I don't know if a sick culture has broken the political system or if a broken political system has made change impossible in a way that's poisoned the culture. But I love Americans. Like I am an unapologetic, oh, yeah. I am an unapologetically pro-American Canadian. Love visiting America. Love spending time with America. I think love their history. They're friendly. I think that they're just wonderful to spend time with. They're, they're some of the greatest people in the world and I am worried yes. about them. Yeah, they don't as, seem well. They don't seem as okay. someone who loves them. I am worried. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm worried about us too, but different. In a very worried. different way. We're we're just kind of dysfunctional, but that's different. Well, let's talk about anyway. I was, let's talk about a kind of dysfunction. I went back in time this week, and I reread the coverage we had run about a year ago after uh, reports of unmarked graves at residential schools began to emerge our buddy and he is a buddy of both of ours so we disclosed that at the at the top terry glavin in the national post wrote a long essay about what we've learned in the year since and i went back and i reread our own coverage and i probably with a year's worth of hindsight we probably could have changed a few of the things we said but i'm talking like line edits like maybe i would have swapped out some words our overall thesis held up fine, which is that be calm. The native leaders, the indigenous leaders in these communities are the only voices of reason right now that a lot of Canadians are descending into a performative garment rending shock cycle because they don't know what their history is. They, yeah. They're learning for the first time that we are the product of an ex violently expansionist empire. Yeah. Terry, in this long, long, long essay this week, basically walked through that despite all the hysteria and the flags being lowered in Canada, we have not, I mean, have we confirmed any bodies at any of these grave sites? And he's being accused of denying the problem, and he's not. No, Glavin I think, spent I think years writing about this. Gavin spent years writing about uh, First Nations issues generally, and he spent years on residential schools. I've spoken with him. Um, about this sort of stuff. He is he is not a denialist. He is not Dorchester Review style. These places were all great. Like that ain't that ain't Terry Glavin. And I think that if you were even remotely familiar with his history, you would know that. I do think that that essay probably could have been better focused and, and probably could have been a little bit shorter so that he could have made that point a bit more aggressively and clearly. So like it was awfully I, long. It was it was probably longer than it needed to be. It was about what but, five, six thousand words. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was probably too long um, to make that point. But I would say this, and that is, um, you know, if you are going around internet in, in the international press, and, and again, this is not the First Nations leaders who, who made this claim, this is the, the, the white leaders who went around, you know, uh, flagellating themselves about mass graves. You know, you want to make that claim, you need to take that claim seriously. It's exactly like when we were started, oh, Canada's a genocide state. And so we're going to censure ourselves. Not at all. No, we're, we're not. We're going to say that we're a genocide state because that will make all this problem go away. But we're not going to treat ourselves like a genocide state in any way because we don't actually believe that. And everyone Prime knows Minister, we don't actually believe that. Prime Minister of Canada pivots from agreeing we're a genocidal state to hosting Canada Day celebrations. 
Yeah, yeah, precisely. Like, like, like we 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 all know that this is performative. We all know that this is not that, that, that these words have have come to be essentially meaningless. And so we're just going to engage in the symbolic act of saying them because we have to show that we're on the right side. That's that's what's happening. And like the same thing happened with with a certain degree of, the, of, of these grave sites. You can't say these are mass graves and then not treat this, treat them like crime sites. You need you need to bring in forensic investigators. You need to dig up these sites. You need to like actually document all of this stuff. And ground penetrating radar isn't that accurate. Like you can't just Ground penetrating radar is not that good. Um, and most people, experts of ground penetrating radar will totally admit that. They'll be like, we can find probable sites here. And like, there are certain patterns you can look for, but it's not a replacement for an actual forensic investigation. Um, and then as Terry, Terry pointed out as well, it's like some of these places were known cemeteries. Some of these places were known cemeteries where the markers either yeah. um, degraded over time or were had been moved taken away or, or had been crosses moved. and rotted which by the way happens all the time in the prairies like that is very very common so it's 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 a, a, a we don't have a really clear picture like the truth and reconciliation um, commission did identify likely thousands of students who died in these schools because these schools were terrible and they were um just hotbeds of all kinds of diseases like tuberculosis and flu and all kinds of things like that and the kids there were not were some of them were horribly malnourished um, which made them more vulnerable to to to, to the infectious illness. So yep. we know that there are thousands of graves out there. Oh, then we the death rate was lops like the death rate between like baseline Canadian elementary school student, even in the contemporary era, is being looked at yes. here in the residential oh. school. It was like five hundred percent differential. Yeah, like like the, not even close. Indigenous <laughs> kids were dying five times as often as the yeah, rest so, because so. the system was barbaric. So Plus like we, all the yeah. actual confirmed abuse within them. No one's denying this in Terry's no, essay. No, like yeah. this is this is this is all established. This is all on the record. We know there are thousands of this here. But you know, some of these cemeteries and some of these mass graves weren't actually mass graves. They just weren't. And yeah. and and um, you know, the the way that white Canada responded to that uh, did head into a moral panic space. Um, despite the best efforts of the very reasonable cautions of, of the First Nations communities examining some of the stuff. And that so, is what we were saying a year ago. That's why I'm glad we kept a somewhat cooler head and we were like, listen to what they're saying. They want a methodical forensic investigation. They're not jumping to conclusions. The rest of the media did and the country went, uh, went with it here. <laughs> Look, I mean, in a really cynical space, Maybe it's good that someone kicked us in the ass and got us thinking about this. How many Canadians were only learning about this shit for the first time I mean, a year ago? That's that's the contrary argument. Like this I'm actually sure, woke people yeah. up. I'm not even sure I'm going to make the argument. Like I'm not going to actually say it's a good thing, but it occurs to me that maybe, maybe the reaction Canadians had that was probably driven by a degree of irresponsible uh, or too vague reporting Maybe it leads to something good, but I'm not saying we should have done it on purpose. Um, because first of all, it erodes our credibility in the press. It's also going to erode the credibility of the next time we find one of these things, even if there's a bunch of the hundred year old or 20 year old or, th or whatever. Every time we fuck this stuff up as the media, it gets harder and harder to convince people that these things happened. Yeah, that's true. Like, there's there's, that's there's true. not a non-zero cost. And then, and then, and then you actually get, do give um, 
uh, fuel to the denialists, the genuine denialists. So yeah. it's it's an interesting thing. But anyway, I don't know if there's anything really to note there. I just sort of thought it was worth, you know, unpacking a bit. I don't in know. If a blurb, it might. I mean, in a blurb, it might come across as. I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. Well, let's let's think about it and move think on to the next it. subject. Yeah. You had an interesting observation, and it aligned with something I have heard. So I'm going to let you go, and then I'm going to tell you what I've heard. Has what? Pierre Polyev gone? Oh, yeah. Uh, so basically, I wanted to do it, and I, this, I was debating whether or not to do this as a blurb or a column. Uh, so tell me what you think. But I think that Pierre Polyev really jumped the shark this week. I, I think he radically jumped the shark this week. And what did he even do? Okay, so there was the, the, the admission that he was talking, like he's listening to some like YouTube conspiracy hole stuff. I mean, Andrew McDougall wrote about that for us this week. What else happened this week? I totally forgot. Oh, he, oh yeah, he basically wanted to reintroduce the National Energy Program. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was like, the one I'd forgotten. That's yeah. fucking crazy. And then what's the third one? Um, oh, my brain, my brain, my brain, my brain. Was it something else about the Bank of Canada governor or something? No, he was on some, some other... Oh, WEF. He's going to ban ministers oh from the my WEF. God. Yeah, okay. Okay, so like all of this stuff adds up to crazy town. Like, like it is. And like, I, I, by the way, I'm not going to treat this as a prediction. I suspect Pierre's going to win the leadership. And I also suspect that the momentum is what it is. He's probably going to wind up being prime minister. So like, let's just, let's just take that at face value. And yep. he's going to read all of these critiques from all of these pundits like McDougal and Urbach and even me as like signs that he must be on the right track because the gatekeepers are against him. That's the way he's going to read and spin it. So like I, nothing I say will change the tra trajectory of this particular history. Yeah. But I think it became impossible to just look at what happened this week and think, oh, this is a guy who's pandering to the to the crazies because he's going to try and bring them into the base and then pivot to a more centrist kind of governance. I think he's gone. I, I, I think if you read his comments and you read the way he's saying, I think he's a true believer. Yeah. And well, I, yeah. I, think, I think he thinks that the WEF is 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 trying to run the world. I think he thinks that, uh, uh, you know, the YouTube pundits have it right on Bitcoin. I think he thinks that, you know, uh, banning uh, foreign oil uh, and basically landlocking Alberta oil producers into a system where they have to produce to Canadian refineries, like that is some kind of um, not insane plan. Like, like, like we didn't try that in the seventies. We did, didn't go well, just so that we're clear. Also, we're now in an integrated North American energy market. And do you want to know how much a refinery costs to build Pierre? Like it's so fucking crazy and stupid. I, I, I think he's, I think he's lost the plot. I honestly suspect that he's lost the plot. Well, that was the, that was, uh, Jen, your audio broke up there just for a second, but um, that's okay. The the question you and I were having earlier in the week, because, yeah, you you and I talked about it. it. The problem is we talked about this before San Antonio, and then San Antonio happened and ate yeah. the news cycle. Um, it was WEF, as you said. It was the new Canadian energy program, and it was, um, oh, damn it. I'm forgetting the third one already. Oh, the, the one that Google just wrote about. Oh, YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. Yeah. And the, the, the question you and I had is, is this a strategic pivot to try and get some of the, the weirder faction and try to rack up that first ballot support? 
or is the mask just slipping? And I have had like three or four conversations this week with Polyev supporters in the conservative party, or at least people who are sympathetic to him kind of going, yeah, I don't know. Like, like something is up here. I don't know this firsthand. I'm prefacing this for the viewers and the listeners, but what I've been hearing through my sources is a degree of growing frustration among even some of Polyev's boosters because he's not listening to them. Now I look, it is, it is the plight of every staffer in the universe to think that your boss would be doing better if only they were listening to you. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a widely shared human uh, belief delusion perhaps. Um, but I've only begun to hear it in the last 10 days or so. Well, and also you notice that that uh, Polyev's uh, uh, negatives are starting to go up among supporters and his approvals are starting to go down. So like, basically the question is also that there's a possibility that he may have peaked too soon. And now that people are starting to get a real look, they're going like, yeah, you're riding the line there, bud. You're dancing on the, on the edge of the, of the, of the volcano. And, and are we really comfortable going there? And like, as I said, I'm going to say this right away. I think probably they are. I think they're going to go there. Um, I would not bet against Pierre at this point. I think it's, it might be too late. Well, it depends on how many leaderships or how many memberships he sold. Um, right? I, I mean, it may, it may, he just may have an insurmountable lead and that's that. The other thing to consider though is have, have, has anyone, I mean, let's, first of all, again, I expect that he's going to win the leadership. If he doesn't, the party's just going to fragment. Like he has the caucus lined up. If the grassroots goes with Sheree, what, like the dozens and dozens of conservative MPs who put a knife in Aaron O'Toole's back to throw themselves behind yeah, Pierre they're Polyev? Gonna totally get behind they're going to go, well, all right, well, bygones be guy, bygones. We're Sheree guys now. Yeah, no. So, it's not going to happen. Yeah. What I, what I would add to all of this, though, is um, this is a different conversation I had this week with uh, someone about, um, you know, I had a version of this conversation like three times this week. So the Ontario Conservatives are doing really well heading into the next election. More to the point, the opposition parties have fizzled. I, I don't know if Doug's gone up a point. I think the Conservatives, I think, are just cruising, and the opposition hasn't laid a glove on them. So yeah. it's looking like Ford's tracking towards not only re-election, but pretty easy re-election. Um, and one of, one of the points that's bubbled up a bunch of times, I've been talking to pollsters about this with Conservatives who aren't involved in the campaign. I've talked to some of Doug's war room guys about this, is that that they got lucky that the issues changed in a way that favors them if there was another brutal covid wave happening right now maybe it's a different situation as it is the leading issues right now are like pocketbook affordability issues well i know that but 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 you're going to shock by how much covid is not on anyone's agenda in the next six months i agree no in fact it already is gone well you were just in toronto you didn't see a lot of masks um there were a few Uh, there's definitely more than calgary but Oh, but but no. I'll tell you this, the, the the mask trend in Toronto the last three months, oh, you can't, my pen's being CGI'd out. It's down. It, like, it's, yeah. um, so it, the, the issues are aligning for Doug in a way that they are not aligning for our federal liberals. The issues, like our federal liberals, less so than before, but they're still the hopey, changey, sunny ways, guys. That's what Trudeau's good at. Trudeau is not good at being stern solid decision making in turbulent times even during the pandemic the most wild era of trudeau's leadership he was still the good news guy i got so well, also he, he got went off to harrison lake and was barely seen from again 
not for a while. I just mean in general, like even in bad times, Trudeau's the voice of reason. In tough times, you get Polyev in there, he'll savage the liberals. And the yeah. liberals have no sense. He'll just, he'll just, he'll come in at the right time. Yep. Like the liberals have been trending down for three elections. They barely, they barely squeaked a minority in the last one. People yeah. are sick of them. People don't like Trudeau. They don't like them. And the the most going to be on the conservative side here. It just it just is. Now it could also be on the NDP side. I don't know, but I just I haven't seen anything from the NDP making me think that they're going to take up the mantle. No, so like either. like just timing. It's just it's just the it's just the timing of history is going to be what it is. And the conservatives get to decide for themselves what they do with that historic opportunity. Remember that column I wrote about eight months ago now saying if O'Toole loses, the conservatives are fucked. Yeah, but they're fucked in the way that they're going to win. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Like... Oh, they're. I think they're going to win the next election. I just yeah. don't know what they do with it. All it's right. Problem. I anyway, have exactly um, four minutes before I need to go pick up my kids. Do you want to mention the food thing, or do you want to just hold that? Uh, no, I think we could mention the food thing. Just something we always keep an eye on because, like, we're really paranoid about it. Is just food prices. Not only do we have the war in Ukraine, uh, sanctions on Russia, which are again two of the biggest grain producing regions on on the planet. Yeah. India um, suspending exports. Yeah, but also uh, India suspending exports, Pakistan suspending exports, and North America is heading into drought. So we're all we're all behind in our planting season. So our food shit's gonna get weird, and by that I mean uh, terrifying and expensive, really quickly, like by fall. We so, North Americans will be okay for bread, but it's gonna be expensive. Yes. Yeah. You know what else like, has been happening in Ontario actually, and I, this is not something I'm gonna write yet. So the the viewers and the listeners get a bit of a sneak peek on this gasoline shortages not because like end of world stuff but because of refining constraints it's it's a very weird time to be alive but the cost of gasoline is very very high the cost of food is going to be very very high on the long weekend i was up north in a, in a town with three gas stations and none of them had gas weird like they were wow and i've talked to some of my industry experts and i'm like should i be worried about this and they said not in the not in the sense of like a catastrophe but they said, "Oh yeah, we're we're experiencing supply and and resupply challenges." Well, and, and this is and this is where you get Pierre going back to our other point. This is where you get Pierre, the the protectionist, the conservative protectionist, right? Mm -hmm. This is this is where he's he. This is why I think he's going to win. He's tracking right on the issues, mm -hmm. but in exactly the same way that Kenny did this, the same thing in Alberta. I can fix all of this. Blah blah blah. blah. He he's he's hitting the the emotional notes correctly, but. He's hitting the emotional notes by basically trying to resurrect the national fucking energy program. Like, like, my dude, like, I get where you're coming from. I get why it's emotionally appealing, but this is not a good idea. Like, this just isn't a smart plan. Um, because what's going to happen next is price controls, right? Like, if you, if you for, if you can force all the Canadian produ producers to to feed the Canadian market first, and you're dealing with runaway. Um, price inflation on gasoline prices what do you do next well you impose price controls in order to keep gasoline prices down for your for your for your constituency it's which means conservative way conservative way and i was like okay so now we're just we're literally just replicating we're replicating the national energy program we're going to artificially yeah, it, reduce our it's fine our it's a conservative this time so it'll be, it'll be this great. time so it'll be totally great anyway so yeah those would be my 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 uh things for the things so we'll, what am i going to do am i going to do i will do i will do guns and i'll pivot it into iglesias uh you want to okay. do pp uh pierre polyev and food uh which again are also kind of related to each other uh is it worth mentioning glavid i mean do we is that a, is that a blurb 
No, that's not a burp. It's, it's a little. Burp. I mean, it would be a little self-congratulatory that we did not lose our minds eh. last year, but I mean, eh. Eh. Move on. okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, just just before the Twitter haters pile on, just for the record, we do not deny what happened at the residential schools. We just think the coverage of it last year was bad. Yes, that's correct. That should and that that should not be as nearly as controversial and contentious a statement as as it will likely become. So. Okay, well, um, yeah, that, that's all I got. And then uh, we we got content for next week already. You're gonna write something on. Um, what am I gonna write on? I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm finally gonna write that goddamn meta piece. I'm borrowing an Oculus from a friend tonight, so I'm gonna experiment oh. with a new Oculus system, um, okay. and I'm gonna write about that. Uh, so that that'll be ready for me sometime next week. I'll write about the gun stuff eventually. Like I'll, I'll write guns for. Oh, give that today. a moment to breathe, man. Yeah, yeah I mean, write column. a blurb, but like give it a moment to breathe. Yep. Just to be tight. Okay. Bye. Bye. See you, everybody. Well, like we said, uh, a heavy episode, kind of an upbeat ending, I confess, but we just get excited when we get to say goodbye. This is Matt Gurney for The Line and Jen Gerson. This was the seventh episode of the Experimental Line podcast. We hope the next one is nicer with more cheerful things to talk about. But in any case, thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already and take good care.